Okay, in today's episode, we have a special edition episode, and this one is called Java and Journals with Jeremy. And today, I'm going to be discussing my dissertation research, and to help me do that, I have a special guest host on with me today, my son, Nathan. Welcome, Nathan. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for agreeing to do this, and as well as I appreciate your all of your assistance and guidance with helping me get going with the podcast uh, experience. It's been a, a learning curve, but uh, I appreciate your uh, expert um, assistance. And I wanted to uh, introduce Nathan because uh, you just... Uh, completed your master's degree, and I was wondering if you could uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your um, your background and your uh, recent completion of that program um, uh, for for our listeners. Yeah, so I did just graduate uh, last month with my uh, master of arts in sound arts and industries from Northwestern University. And it was a one-year program, and it was a total of four quarters. They're on the quarter system instead of the semester system. So that's four uh, quarters that are each approximately 10 weeks. And each quarter, I had several classes that focused on different aspects of uh, sound production. Um, We were fortunate enough to have access uh, at Northwestern to a state-of-the-art professional studio that they had built just for the program uh, recording studio. Um, and so we had hands-on experience working with um, a SSL 24-channel mixer, kind of like one of those big audio mixers that you'd see if you're backstage at like a TV station um, or at a movie studio. And with that, uh, we learned how to set up microphones, and there's a lot of electrical signal uh, routing that I didn't know about going into it. And then there's also a lot of software with Pro Tools and Adobe Audition and Reaper and uh, learning how to mix and edit uh, and sound design and ultimately master any sound project, whether that's um, film sound or a soundtrack or an album or um, a podcast. Um, So it was a pretty intensive one year and I feel like I learned a lot. I had taken a couple of classes at the University of Virginia in sound design, so I was familiar with um, some sound design software and techniques like editing and pro tools but um definitely in a much more amateur sense so this was a good deep dive into uh, sound production yeah that's right i mean i think you learned um as much in a year as um i think somebody doing it on the job would it would probably take them many years to get to the point where you are now so um i think there were a lot of benefits to doing that program yeah, they're, they're definitely were. And now I get to do uh, fun stuff like help make your podcast. So definitely, <laughs> uh, definitely worth it. Okay, so today we are in this kind of special podcast, uh, this, this special episode. We're going to focus a little bit more on you. And so the first thing was I was wondering if you could tell us about your program you got your uh, DBA and can you explain what that means and and where you studied 
Sure. Yeah. So um, I um, had the privilege of um, attending uh, Drexel University's LeBeau College of Business, and they have an executive uh, doctoral program there. Uh, and my uh, degree um, is in a is a doctorate of business administration, and um, they advertise that you can complete it in as little as two and a half years. And so I was actually um, under a lot of pressure um, for because of my family and other reasons to try to finish it in two and a half years. But I also had another motivating factor is that I was determined to uh, graduate before you <laughs> <laughs> because we were both in, uh, you were doing your master's and I was doing my doc- doctorate at the same time. So I would... Um, I did beat you by just a couple months. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so the um, I, and I had the um, uh, privilege to be um, the first in my cohort to uh, do a cross-disciplinary effort where I collaborated with the um, the School of Biomedical Engineering Sciences and Health Systems. Uh, as well as the Conquer Collaborative, which was the Cognitive Neuroengineering and Quantitative Experimental Research Lab uh, at Drexel University. Okay, well, so from my perspective, you, I know, are working very intensively on the dissertation aspect of the program from basically the spring semester of my fourth year at University of Virginia to... Um, kind of the summer or the spring um, of my year in grad school. And so because this is uh, a Java and journals theme, can you tell me about what the topic of your dissertation was? I was at your defense, um, you know, watching via Zoom, but, you know, that was all very technical language. So maybe you could kind of break down in layman's terms what that means. Sure. So the topic of my dissertation uh, was evaluating knowledge transfer during computer-mediated communications. And so what does that mean? Uh, The focus of my research was on knowledge transfer. In other words, how do people uh, share uh, and communicate uh, knowledge uh, that they have in their heads uh, with one another? over the computer. Um, so I was um, inspired by uh, MS Teams or Zoom types of conversations. Um, so that's the computer-mediated communications piece of it. And um, I originally was uh, hoping to simulate kind of a, a Zoom call, but it ended up uh, changing slightly in the lab-based setting because uh, simulating, uh, doing a live call was not, uh, feasible when you have to repeat it many times. Um, so it ended up being more of a computer-based training type of, uh, simulation where it was a, uh, recorded session where I, um, where I had, uh, the speaker in, uh, with a series of recordings sharing information 
um, with uh, the the subjects, the participants in the study. So what I was trying to uh, take a look at was, um, you know, the effectiveness of the communication over the computer uh, as compared to face-to-face uh, -face communications. So I know that when you interviewed and were accepted into the program, I don't think, or my impression is that I don't think you or anybody else in our family, me included, anticipated that your final dissertation would have a neuroergonomics focus. I don't think I'd ever even heard of neuroergonomics until you were in the program. Can you talk about how you ended up as a doctorate of business administration candidate? You ended up collaborating with the neuroergonomics and the neuroengineering lab um, at Drexel. Sure. Yes. Yeah, so I actually had a topic picked out um, that I was getting ready to do. I had written up my memo and um, I, we had a guest speaker at one of our classes and it, uh, the speaker was Dr. Hassan Ayaz who ended up becoming uh, one of my co-chairs along with Rajneesh Suri. And uh, Dr. Ayaz is an expert in the field of neuroergonomics, which is, in the simplest terms, the field of studying the brain and behavior at work. And when Dr. Ayaz did his guest lecture uh, presentation for one of our classes, afterward, I went up to him and I asked, and I uh, proposed an idea that I had been about gauging people's uh, knowledge transfer over the computer. And I asked him, could we uh, take this, um, can we look at this from a neuroergonomics uh, slash neuroscience uh, perspective? And he said, yes. Um, he thought that was something that could be explored further. And um, he took, uh, took me down into the basement of the College of Business along with my uh, colleague, Dr. Greg Duncan at the time. Um, and we went downstairs and he showed us the behavioral lab in the, uh, in the business building. And I was like instantly hooked. And, uh, that was how I, um, started on the journey of, uh, within this program. So you talked a little bit about, how originally with the project that you settled on, you were trying to do live meetings and then you ultimately decided to do more of video instruction. Um, from my research, because I did a, a, a undergraduate thesis, it was, a, it was qualitative research. And so I mostly just did interviews that I then kind of quantified in terms of coding and everything, their responses. How did you take something like um, a per like a human interaction or a person to person interaction information exchange and turn it into a quantitative study what was the methodology that you used yeah that's that's a good question so the the field of neuroergonomics is very much of a quantitative field where um, you're looking at the brain signals and uh, other signals that the the body um, is giving off um, the, your electrodermal response as well as um, your heart rate um, which are other factors that I measured and it's taking those uh, those values 
um, and it's capturing those values and storing it in uh, in the form of of raw data, and then um, you're you're analyzing the the data that you're you're gathering from that. And in addition, uh, I also, as part of my study, I had a series of surveys and uh, assessments after each of the, you know, throughout the experiment. And so all of that was boiled down into hard numbers. And so um, in, in, the, in the data um, was then uh, run through a number of statistical models. Uh, and so that's why it was very much of a uh, quantitative uh, type of uh, research experiment. Now, I want to make sure that I ask you, I don't know if we touched on this specifically, what were the research questions or what was the research question um, that you were investigating? Right. So the um, what I did was I looked at the through the lens of a neuroergonomics and biomedical technologies approach um, compared to face to face communication uh looking at computer-mediated communications, how does knowledge... In looking at face-to-face -face versus computer-mediated communications, what is the effectiveness of knowledge transfer? And then, through the lens of neuroergonomics and uh, studying and looking at knowledge transfer, how does the commu computer-mediated communications technology have an impact on the the knowledge transfer process? So, uh, my understanding of that, and correct me if I'm wrong, is essentially how well is information communicated um, in something like a video call or a uh, a, like a mediated communication. That's correct. Yeah. So, um, as compared to face to face, where you know somebody is sitting right next to you, um, how does how is uh, the communication impacted when it's being done over the computer? And one thing I think is kind of interesting to note is that I know that you do some of your interviews remotely. We're actually in the same room, and so this it seems like would kind of fall into something that you would study is like if you're doing it a, a podcast interview remotely versus person to person that could be affected by potentially um you know because this is technically a face-to-face -face interaction as opposed to mediating that's a good point actually there was another experiment going on um uh a while before i did mine that you and i actually participated in um that one of the things that they were looking at um, in Dr. Ayaz's lab was um, doing, um, uh, it was a uh, video game um, uh, research where you had two people um, playing a video game and they were looking at it from a team's approach. And uh, in one of the scenarios, uh, the the subjects were in different rooms and then they moved us into the same room and they were also comparing that. So it is interesting. Uh, I'm not sure what the findings were from that research, but it is interesting doing this interview with you today 
that we're both sitting in the same room. Um, and so uh, it is kind of a little bit of a different experience. Yeah. Well, I mean, it seems like, especially since the pandemic, more and more there's a tendency to have meetings for business or just for personal reasons over uh, like video call, uh, whether it's, you know, like a set of meeting for work or, um, you know, a, like a video doctor's appointment. That's a lot more common. Or even, you know, during the pandemic, my great grandmother was able to use Zoom on her iPad to zoom us from her assisted living facility in Florida, which I don't think anybody, I don't think anybody around her would have been able to figure that out before COVID, you know? And so all of a sudden you have all these video interactions, um, where information is being exchanged virtually that you wouldn't, you wouldn't have had, you know, five, 10 years ago. That's right. And, um, the, the benefit of having a video call as opposed to just a regular phone call is we had our, you know, 90 year old, um, great grandmother on the phone and she could see and interact with us as well as with young children who can see your face on a video call. Um, it'd be very difficult to have a call with, you know, between a grandchild or great grandchild and their great grandmother. But if you can see her, and she can see you, then at least everybody's smiling and you're saying hello and waving. And it can be a very short interaction, but it was uh, uh, a great um, experience being able to see her, even though we weren't able to be there in person. Yeah. And so that's a kind of an example, anecdotally, of, of, of positive exchange. What were your findings? What were the results of your um, dissertation experiment? Yeah. So... Um, just to back up, um, just very briefly, um, what I ended up doing with the research was I um, ended up conducting an experiment where I had 33 participants um, sit in front of a computer, watch a uh, series of 16 video recordings that were um, basically uh, modified um, from real-world training. Uh, they were forensic um, fingerprint and DNA lab based training um, and then they were uh, connected to uh, technology that um, looked at their brain waves called um, uh, functional near infrared spectroscopy or FNIRS for short as well as as I mentioned before the EDA which is the electro electrodermal response which is similar to when the um, the hair on your hand or arm goes up because you're scared or surprised. Uh, that's the electrodermal response. And then your heart rate. And so um, based on all of this, um, as well as the the survey data and the, um, the data from the, uh, the assessments, uh, I was able to, to um, I did a statistical analysis on all of this data and um, I was able to break it down by uh, looking at the knowledge transfer performance um, as well as the, um, the cognitive workload or um, also referred to as the mental effort. Um, the, 
emotional valence, which is a term that means the um, the extent to which an emotion is positive or negative, um, and then the emotional arousal, which was measured with the EDA, um, as well as the uh, heart rate. And so, so with my findings, I found that um, essentially the uh, what I termed as the bandwidth, which was um, video on or off, that overall um, of the independent variables uh, with regard to the bandwidth, it was consistently it consistently had the most impact across all of the variables. So when the video was on, um, the the not the accuracy was better, the understanding uh, was improved, and the participants uh, felt less rushed. Um, when the video was off, the accuracy was lower. Uh, the understanding was less, and the participants felt more rushed. In addition, with regard to the content complexity, um, it was, you know, easier or hard. Um, when the content complexity had an effect, especially when the content was hard. Um, one finding that I was a little bit surprised about, and would probably take some additional investigation is that the dis distractions which were introduced as part of the experiment um, where it had dogs barking in the background and leaf blowers and vacuuming sounds and others that I introduced artificially into the recordings, um, they, the bearing, they had some bearing on the mental effort, but not as much of an influence in other areas as I might have, have expected. Okay, so can you tell me, based on that that finding, those findings, what would be from of those scenarios the most ideal and least ideal um, scenario in terms of information exchange on uh, from the video instruction? So I would say, in general, um, that. The, because the the video seemed to have um, not just the video but screen sharing is as much as possible um, I would say having the video on during a teams or zoom call for example um, seems like it uh, may play a factor um, I think it's it could be it can be um, difficult to uh, for for people to absorb as much information uh, when they're sh looking at a blank screen. Um, in addition, you're also and I, and I didn't study this this portion of it, um, but I think the facial expressions probably tie in. Um, I think further research would be need would be needed for that piece of it because um, I didn't look at facial expressions per se. But I think when you don't have the video on, you're you're losing. A lot, um, much communication is um, is is body language. I think it's like uh, eighty percent or more of 
um, communication is considered nonverbal. Um, I'm not sure if that number is quite right, but it's it's pretty high. So when you're when you don't have the video, you're you're losing out on all those nonverbal cues, um, for one thing. And then when you're in, without screen sharing, you're also obviously losing the ability to to be able to see and understand it quite as effectively. So I would say in general, uh, I would encourage uh, people to have their video on as much as possible. Um, I think also. Uh, the distractions in my research didn't have as much of an effect as I would have hoped or expected, um, and more research is needed. But I would say in general, I think if you're working from home, for example, it's important to be in a quiet space as much as possible to avoid uh, distractions. Um, I mean, I guess that kind of goes without being said, but uh, sometimes it might be easier said than done. To me, it seems like um, another interesting distraction to study would be um, a situation in which the uh, people who were in the experiment were shown also in the corner a video of themselves in real time. It'd be a little bit challenging to incorporate, but I'm not familiar with Teams, um, but FaceTime and Zoom and Skype, they all show you a video of yourself as you're on these calls and I find it hard to not look at myself um, during calls uh, even in group settings like uh, lectures that I had online during COVID uh, they show you basically like a mirror um, and so it also can be pretty distracting to just be constantly worried about how you're how you look and how you're being perceived um, also aside from you know other things that may be going on around you I agree. Um, that was actually part of the motivation for my study is that I find the that mirror or the self video mode that is common in um, video communications platforms. I find that to be very distracting. Um, I originally I was going to look at that as one of the factors, but because of the nature of my study, I ended up having to take that out because it, they were pre-recorded. But I agree. I think um, further research is needed on that. But I would, I would, um, my hi hypothesis would be that uh, the self video is um, is quite distracting. It's not really needed, um, other than once you kind of have aligned yourself in the in the video frame. Um, I don't see a lot of value in it. Um, I think it could probably um, an outline of yourself to you know show that you're you're in the frame or maybe get an alert if you go out of the frame maybe something like that might be useful but just having the 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 self video up all the time um is distracting i also think it's distracting when you're on a a, a zoom or, or teams call and you see you're just looking at everybody's face it's not it's unlike a um an in-person meeting where you're sitting at a conference room table, for example, rarely, if you're ever in an in-person meeting, rarely are you always kind of looking directly at the person and they're lo looking directly at you. Usually they're looking away. They're looking across the table or down at their paper or something or their laptop. They're, you know, they're looking away from you. And so I find that also to be a little bit distracting myself. Similarly, when you are in an in-person situation, a nonverbal way to show someone that you're paying attention or that you understand is by looking them directly in the eye. Whereas when you're doing a video call, the only way to mimic 
that feeling is to look directly into the camera, which feels unnatural because you want to look at someone's face. But then, kind of conversely, if you are looking at your screen, then it looks like you're looking down and you're not looking somebody in the eye on the other end. That's true, yeah. Sometimes I'll be on a call and somebody might have dual monitors um, and their camera is on a different monitor. So the whole time they're looking at a different monitor than me completely. So I'm not even looking at them in the face at all, which also feels a bit awkward. Yeah. So, yeah, um, I think any of those, uh, even if the, even if it's slightly um, impacts the conversation, um, I think it, you know, it, it could, any of those factors could potentially negatively impact the, the conversation or the, the, the flow of communication. Now, um, this was a business-centered program. And my question would be, if this were applied to a business scenario, I know from witnessing it that you had to pour over this data and a lot of it had to be kind of crunched, numbers crunched by hand and it took several months. Do you see a world in which a business could hire someone like you or Dr. Ayaz to come in and put the Efners on employees and be able to tell them in a short amount of time how effectively their teams are working remotely. I mean, my one of my first summer internships was completely remote. I never met my supervisor or my uh, or his supervisor, but I met with him pretty regularly. Could they kind of in theory in the future be able to um to track that to do what you did in this experiment but kind of in a a shorter time scale yeah so that gets into the realm of an area called wearables um that is an emerging field um it's still i would argue is in its infancy um but there are wireless um capabilities that are out there um where the FNIRs, um, there's a wireless um, version of the FNIRs as well as the um, the other components. Um, it's not. It, it's. I would say it's probably a few years away from being used in the scenario that you um, you you envision there. But I think it's it's um, it's plausible, and I think that in the coming years, um, it's. I, I could see it happening. There's also uh, one of the subsets of wearables is jewelry, where you have rings um, that can monitor your heart rate, for example. Um, there's uh, watches and bracelets and um, other types of uh, jewelry and wearables um, that are that are being adopted uh, more and more. Um, they don't. They don't none of those technologies look at knowledge transfer uh as far as i know they're they're um they're more for um for fitness and health and other reasons but i think that the potential is there to be adapted for um helping improve uh the uh, the exchange of ideas over over the computer or just the exchange of ideas um face to face um for that matter and to me, it seems like that would be, in terms of the number crunching, um, an area in which AI potentially could be beneficial. 
Um, I mean, I, I saw some of the charts, the raw kind of data charts, and it was just spreadsheets and spreadsheets full of numbers um, that you had to pour over by hand. Is that something that AI would be able to help with there as a tool? Or is that, do you think it'll always need a human element to uh, kind of translate that data into uh, useful information? No, yeah, I, I think that you, you bring up a, a very good point. Um, I think that is where AI can come into play. Um, it's, it's in the beginning phases of um, with data analysis. Um, right now, um, once the, the data comes in, there's, there's a lot of data. Um, and it's very manually intensive to, um, to, to clean up and filter and interpret the data and then, um, and then to, uh, to analyze it further. Uh, so I think where the, uh, the AI can come into play, which would be, so where the AI could come into play is, um, the processing of that. Um, that information so that it's more uh, near real-time or real-time uh, analysis that could be provided back as feedback to the end user. Um, and I know that there are labs around the world that are, are looking at that particular area uh, now, and it's not there yet, but I could see that being um, possible in the next, you know, the next few years. Okay. Well, is there anything else that you think uh, people should know about your about your dissertation work? I think that uh, I always like hearing about how you were able to collect the data so quickly. I think it was nothing short of a miracle. You talked about you wanted and kind of needed to get this dissertation done within a certain time frame. And a lot of things came together really fast. I guess one of the last things I would like to know is can you just uh talk about your kind of marathon data collection uh session uh in july of 2022 yeah so the um uh with the data collection um i i had a very short amount of time to to collect all my data and i ended up um being able to um collect it from 33 participants um, in Drexel in a very short amount of time. And um, it felt to me like it was nothing short of a miracle. <laughs> and um, I think it was just because I was, uh, not only was I motivated, but I was under um, very time constraints uh, related to my work and my family situation. And so I think sometimes uh, that forces you to, um, to be quite motivated to collect your data and several of the um, the researchers in the lab were said that they were just amazed that I was able to collect the data from 33 participants so quickly in um, in only about three weeks. Um, so I felt uh, I felt good about that. But um, yeah, I think the kind of the final point that I'll make is that um, uh, I feel like the neuroergonomics field is has enormous potential um i only see it growing and um like you mentioned a few minutes ago with the ai i think the ai and the machine learning attributes uh that can come into play to help especially with the data, data analysis and um and the potential for f 
real-time feedback um, show a lot of promise. And uh, I'm really excited to see where this field is going to go um, in the in the near future. All right. Well, thank you very much for having me on as your guest interviewer. Uh, giving up the reins to uh, your podcast a little bit. Yeah. Well, thank you for uh, for for joining today on the on the podcast. Um, and uh, hopefully, I can have you back uh, at some point in the future. All right. Look forward to it. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Nathan. You're listening to the I Am Not a Robot podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy Ray.